Hi there, esteemed audience. Welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm Rob Kent, author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, which, as you know, uh, is available in paperback, audiobook narrated by the wonderful David Radke, and the ebook is free to download whenever you're listening to this. So go ahead, get your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Get ready for Banneker Bones and the Alligator People coming soon. Under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written some adult uh, novels, including uh, uh, All Together Now, a zombie story. That one's a young adult novel. And then I've got a serial, The Book of David. And we're going to be talking a lot about serials today. The Book of David is five chapters long. You can get the first chapter, this tiny little bit here, for free as an ebook whenever you're listening to this. So go download that, check that out if you like it. Come see me with money for two, three, four, and five. Um, coming up here on the Middle Grade Ninja podcast or YouTube show, whichever you're viewing this or listening to this on, uh, we are going to have Jacqueline West. She is the author of the Books of Elsewhere series, as well as the new book, The Collectors. Uh, she's going to be on here January 22nd, next Friday, so make sure you come back for that. And then we're going to have former literary agent who represented such authors as Amy Reed, uh, the wonderful Courtney Summers. Uh, we're going to have former literary agent and now editor Amy Tipton on, on uh, when is she coming on? She will be here on the 18th, so make sure you come back and uh, check out Amy Tipton's interview. Today, however, get ready. I am so excited. Uh, we are going to have somebody, an author that I have a, been in admiration of for many years now and consider kind of my guru, my go-to. I think I've, I've joked before that uh, one of my phrases is, what would Susan K. Quinn do? Uh, that's a question I ask myself when I'm getting ready to make any decisions about writing or publishing. This is a huge honor. I'm very excited. Susan K. Quinn, welcome to Middle Grade Ninja. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So tell uh, esteemed audience, because you you know your uh, resume better than I do. Tell esteemed audience all the things that you've done and, and why it's so wonderful that we're about to hear from you. Oh, well, um, I don't know about that second part, but I have written a lot of books. I've got about 34 novels across two pen names, and that doesn't count the short stories and other things like that. Um, I write science fiction under my public name, Susan K. Quinn, and romance under a pen name that I don't talk about. I don't talk about the pen name, but I do talk about the book. So um, why should you listen to what I have to say? Because I want to help people. I want to make sure that I have had such a great experience with discovering this creative side of my life and turning it into a business that I really want other people to be able to do that, not only to enrich their lives, but the rest of the world. I think we all really benefit when people are finding their bliss and, you know, finding their dreams and actually, you know, having a paycheck so that they can support their families and have the security that comes with that. <clears throat> I don't know. Is paychecks that good are hugely important. <laughs> yes. And you've got, uh, you've also got a background that's just so diverse and, and, and so wonderful for somebody who's coming to, to fiction because you've, you've actually done things beyond just read books. You, uh, you worked for NASA, you've been in politics. Yes, I've, I had a life before I became an author and um, I got a PhD in engineering and worked for NASA and did some other stuff, worked for GE aircraft engines for a while, did some research in global warming and then ended up staying home with my kids for a little while. And after that, I, I'm sort of like transitioning from being home and being very intensely into family for a while. Um, I eased back into the world of working stuff again by doing 
running for school board and I was elected and served for four years there and that was very interesting <laughs> and then somewhere in the middle there I picked up the pen and sort of rediscovered this thing that I love to do um, which is very interesting because I don't I didn't have a conception of myself as a writer before that point although as a recent trip over Christmas I went back home and went back through some of my old stuff from when I was a kid and I found this box in my closet that had a bunch of old short stories I had written and a screenplay that my friends had starred in. I completely had forgotten about all of this stuff. And I like rediscovered it. I'm like, okay, I have to like reset this idea that I just started writing 10 years ago. I was doing this stuff when I was a kid and I kind of left that all behind to go do engineering. Um, but now I'm bringing it full circle again and uh, going back to what I did as a kid, but also just recently and this year, more integrating a lot of my technical knowledge into my stories, getting a little more techie with some of my stuff, even in my romance, which was lots of fun. So um, yeah, I've had a very, I'm very lucky to have had a very interesting life so far. And I continue to, I plan to continue that for quite some time. <laughs> well, I continue to, uh maintain that Susan Kaiklin is, is who I want to be when I grow up uh, one of these days. So I, I bet you're the kind of person that just from the outside looking in uh, doesn't go halfway on anything. I bet when you were a stay-at-home mom, you were the mom that other moms wish they were, um, <laughs> that, that you go full in on, on, on anything that you do. Am, am I right about that? I, I certainly, yeah, I would confess to that. I'm a very all-in kind of person. Um, I want to I want the things that I do to mean something and to be worthwhile. And if it's means something and it's worthwhile, I'm going to give it everything I've got and just like go for it. And if it works out great. And if it doesn't work out, I'll find out what the next thing is and I'll have learned something along the way. And having that sort of approach um, is actually something I advocate for people who are authors. And, uh, you know, a lot of times authors are they're watching podcasts like this or they're reading books or they're trying to get information about the business. Like, what do I do to succeed? How do I how do I make it all work? And, you know, it's not like I actually went and got the answer to those questions from someone else. What I did primarily and not that I didn't read books and and, you know, network with other authors because I did a ton of that, too. Well, I'm actually here to get the answer from you. So, I know, so. <laughs> I know. And so here's here's the answer. Okay, are you ready? I am. All right. The answer is it's up to you to figure it out. <laughs> totally <laughs> useless unless you know what I mean by that. And what I mean by that is, and it is that is an actual real answer. Okay. The real answer is that you need to do whatever it is that is your best guess. Come up with a theory about how book selling works put in a plan, some kind of plan that actually executes on that theory, take some measurements to see this in my engineering site coming out, take some measurements to see if it's actually working, if your theory matches up with reality. And if it doesn't, pivot and change your theory and start over and reiterate. And that's really all I have done all along is from the very first trilogy that I published back in 2011 when self-publishing was just getting started and I was looking around and I was seeing other people do this and I was like hey that seems like it's possible like there's people actually doing this now and making a living at it and it's it's like for real so can I do that 
I don't know. Can I do it? Uh, I'm just going to try. I've got this novel that I had actually out to agents and publishers and stuff. And so I pulled that back and I said, okay, I'm going to make a plan. I'm going to publish a trilogy. It's going to, going to do it in a year and I'm going to do everything that I know how to do to make it work. And I had a very specific knowledge set at that point. And most of it was like up for grabs because the, the industry was brand new. So you really couldn't kind of make up the rules as you went along. Um, so I just made up some rules. I'm like, well, it seems like people would want to read the book before they buy it, you know, in some senses, get some reviews ahead of time. That seems to make sense. You know, and I, I borrowed some from traditional publishing and borrowed some of my own ideas, made a literal marketing plan. And I said, okay, in six months, I'm just going to go all in. I'm going to do the trilogy no matter what. I'm going to like put some money into, you know, advertising and, making copies of the book to give to people and do various things. And in six months, I'm just going to see if it works. And if it works, great. And if it doesn't work, then I'll have to rethink <laughs> whether I really want to do this or not. You know, well, six months later, it was selling like gangbusters. And obviously it was, it demonstrated the possibility. So I didn't assume that just because those books sold that I was like somehow set for life. Right. And then all my books would be golden and all of them would sell forever. You know, like it wasn't like that. Which is what made it so ironic when that's what happened. Right. Well, actually, no, no, it's not. You and also really, uh, really quick for people who aren't total Susan K. Quinn nuts like I am. The uh, original trilogy, was, trilogy we're talking about was the Mindjack trilogy, right? Beginning with Open Minds, which is free to download as an ebook now. Anytime anybody's watching this, do I have that right? That is correct. And that, that trilogy is the first trilogy. I actually wrote more of those books later on, like five years later. Um, but that first trilogy, I wrote it and then I moved on to other books. And it, it wasn't a straight golden path of everything that I wrote magically sold. People will look at the outside and say, well, you're successful now and, and you've been successful all along. And both of those things are true, but that does not mean that everything worked. And in fact, a lot of things I tried didn't work, spectacularly failed. <laughs> and, and that was tremendous learning experience for me. And whenever things weren't trending the way that I wanted, I pivoted and I said, okay, now my model, my model worked before, but now it's not working anymore because the publishing industry has changed fundamentally and I have to change to adapt to it. And that's one of the things that I've seen that a lot of authors Something when, when something changes, they'll look to other people and say, well, now what do I do? And it's like, well, I can't tell you. I don't know <laughs> what the future is going to bring. You just have to try something, see if it works. If it doesn't work, change it and try again and keep trying and keep trying some more. And that sort of persistence is everything in this business. And you have to persist in the right way, though. You can't just persist with like, well, I'm just going to follow this path for seven years and eventually it'll take off by itself by some kind of magic pixie dust because that doesn't work either 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 it starts to go you have to commit some you know you can't like pivot every day right you need to have some kind of middle grain you know give yourself a month or six months or a trilogy some set period of time to say okay is this working and if it's not then do something different. Don't do the same thing again, because if you do the same thing again, you're going to get the same result, probably, unless some magic pixie dust comes along, because that does happen. Yeah, just ask uh, 
Well, you know what? I, I don't author shame, so I'm not going to say who got the magic pixie dust, but we all know some examples. And if you're thinking of one uh, esteemed audience, rest assured, that's the one I was going to say. Um, but let me, uh, let me bring back, as you say that, I know that one of your big points is making an author mission statement for yourself, mm -hmm. starting with a clear goal so that when you reach that goal or fail to do so, you know uh, what that goal was rather than kind of changing it on the fly. Do I have that right? Well, yes and no. I think you absolutely have to change it on the fly <laughs> because life changes and you change, hopefully, and definitely the industry changes. And so um, I wrote my first mission statement before I ever published a book, even my very, very first book, which actually went through a publisher, a small press. And um, even before that, I was writing what my core ideas were. I wanted to sell a bunch of books, but it wasn't because I wanted to get rich or famous. It was because I wanted to connect with a lot of people. I had things to say, and I wanted those things to, to have an impact on a lot of people. And so that's what sales means to me. And so having that sort of statement of purpose, for, and that's mine, right? Someone else might be like, I have a certain, uh, art that needs to be created and it's just an expression that I need to excavate from my soul and get out into the world because that's that's why I'm here. They might have that sort of artistic mission or vision. And for them- Isn't it nice when those uh, two things align, when that's the thing, that's the book of your soul and it also happens to be suited to the market or do those two things align? Of course they do. Sometimes they do. Not always and often not at all. <laughs> Okay, because there's no guarantees that what you excavate from your soul is what other people want to read. And that doesn't mean that it's bad in any way. Um, you may be ahead of your time or you may just be very unique. And those things are beautiful and special. But that doesn't necessarily get paid in money. There are a lot of things in our society that don't get paid in money. But we tend to be a very money focused society. So like if it's not paid in money, then somehow it's not as worthy. It's not as worthwhile. And I would just say, you know, being a mom is one of the most amazing worthwhile things I've ever done that was never paid in money. In fact, it's a net loss in money, a serious <laughs> net loss in money. No, I'm you're still wonderful. paying money for that. Very wealthy. They're going to take care of you in old age. It's oh, all no. No, no, no. They're all going to follow their hearts and do, you know, things that don't make any money too. So no, it's, I'm not worried about my children because I think I have given them something way more important than money, which is a sense of who they are and, and the love that will carry them forward to finding things that are important to them. So mission accomplished with that. And I'm almost got, you know, I've got one out the door, one on the way, and the third one is a couple years from. So I feel a lot of pride with that. And it's, again, never going to be reflected in a paycheck. So I, but you I have made the world better three people at a time, right? That's right. I That's what I think. So, you know, and so I encourage uh, authors to embrace those those aspects of themselves. Like, I really do embrace that there's a part of me that has stories to tell and wants to have impact and that that's what's most important, not if I ever make another dime of money from it. Um, on the other hand, money is great and it does great things and it allows me to, for example, pay for my kids to go to college wherever they want, you know, so it enables their dreams. So I, I think we, we tend to shame ourselves and other people 
But per first we shame ourselves in saying, well, you shouldn't be such a wild-eyed artist and wanting to write the book of your heart. Well, of course you should. You should absolutely do that. And we'll shame ourselves in the other end and say, don't be a sellout and just sell whatever, you know, the least common denominator is of the ragtag public and what they want to read. It's like, well, what's wrong with writing things that people want to read? There's nothing wrong with that. So, you know, wherever you're coming at from it, just know yourself, know what's important to you. And if there's things in tension like that, that's okay too. Acknowledge those things and find a way to do both or find a way to address, you know, put one of those to bed if they need to go to bed so you can focus on the other for a while or vice versa. That's what I do and that's what I encourage people to do. Makes sense to me. Well, I've got a million questions uh, for you. I wanna, okay. I wanna talk to you both uh, as an author because you've written some incredible books and I also wanna talk to you as a, as a publisher uh, because you're, you're the, the thing that so many of us talk about, you're doing by example, we can see that, oh, this is definitely possible. Susan K. Quinn did it. Now, granted, she's a superhuman who also worked for NASA and is incredible in all things. But if I could get halfway to Susan K. Quindom or even a third of the way, I'd be doing pretty well for myself. We'll be, we'll be all right. Uh, so why don't we start off? Well, first of all, um, fans of the show are, are, are going to be kicking me if I've got a NASA employee on here and I don't ask point blank, do you have a take on flying saucers real or no? <laughs> um, I don't know i have no inside knowledge and that i can share with you um oh this but... interview is over forget it <laughs> <laughs> but i i love having fun with things i love imagination and i you know humans read stories into everything so party on with that um and i hope someday that we actually can meet the extraterrestrials that i believe are actually out there However, it might not be a pleasant encounter. So we need to be a little careful about that. <laughs> I'm the one who's like, no, don't broadcast to the universe that we're here. We're not ready for them yet. <laughs> Let's just, you know, cool our jets a little one, wait until we evolve and have our own, you know, like space defenses or something before the universe decides to visit us. So that's my take on first encounters. Makes sense to me. But if you see a flying saucer, come back on and tell us about it. That, that's going to be an amazing episode. Absolutely. <laughs> let's, uh, let's talk. Let's pivot to middle grade fiction. Uh, we'll start there, although you've written a little bit of everything. So we're going to before the before we're done, we'll talk to we'll talk to a lot of genres. But let's start specifically with middle grade. You've written a wonderful middle grade novel, uh, Fairy Swap. And I am terrible about summarizing other people's novels. If anybody ever checks out my reviews at, at middlegradeninja.com, you'll notice I use a lot of quotes direct from the book. And the reason is, is because I, I figured that the author already told the story, right? I can't screw it up if I if I just say what they said. Uh, so since I have you, the author of Fairy Swap, on tell a esteemed audience a little bit about that book and the premise. Uh, well, it's told from the point of view of two boys. One is a fairy and one is a human boy. And uh, the fairy tricks the human into switching places with him in his fairy realm because he's a runaway prince. And the boy is desperate to get back to his home, in, which is actually uh, in England near uh, Stonehenge, which has an important role to play in the magic of the story. Um, and he's, he's trying to get back home because his dad is kind of delinquent, his mom is gone, and his little sister is there all on her own. 
and he's been kind of taking care of her. So he's he's desperate to get back to make sure nothing goes wrong with his kid sister. And of course he has creatures and friends and enemies that he has to fight along the way to get back, not least the fairy prince himself who does not want to return to his realm. And so the story follows their sort of back and forth. And I had a lot of fun with that book, um, partly because of the voice. Um, I had to sort of conjure this ancient fairy Irish type voice. And I got a wonderful narrator to do the audiobook version of it. He's a Irishman who moved to the United States. And so he has like a really dead on American accent and a dead on Irish accent. And he had a lot of fun doing the two voices in that book. Um, it's a great one for kids because um, it's fun and it's an adventure, but it also, you know, I'd like to bring in my science and math stuff. So the, the magic in that story is mathematically based. So the fairies in that story are actually sneaking back to earth to steal mathematical knowledge because that powers up their magic. And that plays like a key part in the story. So that was fun to do as well. And I love that metaphor, especially from an author uh, who does have a background in engineering and, and very science heavy, um, because it's it, it's a wonderful metaphor, I imagine, for your mind, uh, going back and forth between the, the left side and the right side and, and kind of separating how one informs the other. Sure. Or am I reading too much into it? No, read away. I, I think <laughs> every story is only half written when it's written. You know, it's what what lives in the reader's mind makes it the other half. So I love when people find stuff in my stories like that. That's great. Oh, so is it your standard answer to a reader theory is did, when you read that, did it make the story better for you? Then absolutely, <laughs> that, that's what it was? Yes, that's absolutely what I wrote. That <laughs> makes sense. And you've done, um, well, let me ask you this. Uh, there's obviously, there's a theory um, put forward about the, uh, purpose of Stonehenge within the novel that's that's fun and fantastical. Do you, I know you haven't seen a flying saucer, but do you have a theory about what Stonehenge was used for? Or can you solve that mystery for us here today? I don't. I, I'm not privy to any more than the average Google search would be, but um, I, I do hope to travel there actually someday. So maybe I'll get some kind of vibe off of it when I get out to actual England and visit the stones themselves. But I, I think well, perfect. You'll, you'll come back and you'll say, Rob, you'll never believe this. I went out and I saw a Stonehenge, a flying saucer descended while I was looking at it. I have so much to tell you and your audience <laughs> about. It's going to be fantastic. There you go. <laughs> let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the things that you did to market uh, Fairy Swap, because I'm, I'm in awe of your ability as a marketer. Uh, one of the things you did is a virtual school visit. Uh, and I wanted to ask you about that and what the success was of having a pre-recorded video that teachers could play for their students and, and then use that to, to spur them to read the book. Um, basically, there was no success. And this is where I come in and say that middle grade novels are extremely hard to market. And I know because I tried. I tried everything I could think of. And um, that particular school visit actually was personally requested by one of the teachers at one of my kids' school. They're like, oh, this is wonderful. We wanna have you come in and talk about the books. Can you put together a video? And I did. And it was the same for the trailer. They wanted a trailer to show on their morning announcements and that kind of thing. So, you know, these are tools, the, the tools are not bad by any stretch. They're great tools. Um, and the problem with middle grade and indie authors, okay, is that 
middle grade is really a locked system. They have uh, different rules apply for the middle grade market then apply for everything else and including YA and YA is sort of a hybrid. Okay, so the children that are involved, like the young adults themselves who read young adult novels are closer to being in the middle grade market. So most of the indie authors who sell YA sell to adults who read YA. Because the, dis the, the key distinction is that the discovery of books for children and the discovery of books for adults are two different mechanisms. And so remember how I talked about having a theory about how books work. Okay, here's my theory that I've proved out to at least my own satisfaction about middle grade works in young, young adult or young adults reading young adult. They find out about books through their friends, through their who are in a very small circle um, and from their teachers and their parents and their teachers and their parents and librarians <clears throat> have sort of an oversight over their books, right? They're like, hey, don't go read just any book, right? Off the shelf. We want to make sure you have kid appropriate books. Now, not everybody does that. Certainly, there are lots of parents who are like, hey, you can read it. Go for it. I don't care if it's Fifty Shades of Grey. You party on, my friend. You're going to find out about this stuff eventually anyway. God but bless those parents. <laughs> parents, if you're listening, please continue to uh, freely let your children read. <laughs> right. I was I was not one of those parents, so I can understand uh, the hesitation up to a certain level. Once my kids turn 13, I'm like, okay, 13, you're on your own, pal. Now you can read anything you like. But um, but because they have those um, those controls in place, and there's a whole system for them. There's library review books. There's uh, distribution channels with Scholastic to get into schools with book fairs. There's all kinds of things that reinforce that sort of closed system so that kids are sort of nudged towards certain books, okay? And unless your books happens to be the next Rick Riordan book or the next Harry Potter book that has national attention, kids mostly discover within that closed network. And that closed network is not open to indie authors. And even if it was, um, the market, that closed network, that closed market is just really small. It's a very small, you would think with all the books that kids read, because they tear through a ton of books, especially the readers, right? That it would be a really big market, but it's just not. There's just the total sales on it is just small. So you're chasing a small closed market when you're trying to do a middle grade book. And the best way to sell middle grade books, a lot of middle grade books, is to go through a publisher. And a publisher is extremely difficult, as everyone knows. Traditional publishing, they only publish a few number of books every year. It's not open to everyone. So, you know, again, it's a closed system. So on the other hand, with adult books, there's, it's a huge market. There's tons more adults than there are kids, and there's more readers, and they read a lot more books, and they spend, and they have money, <laughs> so they spend <laughs> money important. on books, you know. So it's you're chasing a much bigger market that's open to everyone, and the review system is online. It's Amazon reviews or Kobo reviews or you know podcasts or blogs or you know, and then there's always word of mouth. You know, talk to your friends. What are you reading? and book clubs and other stuff like that. It's just really much more open to indie authors. So that's my take. I wrote my one middle grade and I was like, 
I just love this story. And I actually have written two middle grade novels. I didn't publish the first one. And um, the second one published because I wanted to have something to share with my kids when they were that age. They were still young enough to say, oh, look, my mom wrote a book and show it with to their friends and whatnot. Um, but as far as business and, and reaching that goal where I really want to reach readers, that had to happen with adult readers or at least young adult novels for adult readers. So that's where most of my other works have been. Well, tragically, I can uh, validate that a little bit. Was it uh, nine, ten years ago, whatever it was? Uh, at one point, you and I uh, swapped critiques back when you were uh, writing middle grade, which was a much better deal, I think, for me uh, than, it, than it was for you. Um, <laughs> And um, but after, uh, fortunately, my, my, my first book was altogether now a young adult novel, uh, which had a little bit more crossover appeal. And then if I had only published Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, which is hands down my favorite book, that is the book of my heart. I would have thought, oh, this isn't really a viable career option. Let's let's not pursue this further. Fortunately, I also published some adult horror and continue to do that. But the middle grade fans. Um, though they are fewer, are the most dedicated fans. Um, mm -hmm. I haven't been able to get an adult to send me a photo of themselves dressed as uh, David Walters or a pizza delivery man, but I have had uh, multiple <laughs> children now send me photos of themselves dressed as Banneker Bones, uh, in one case dressed as Banneker Bones with a robot, and that is really fulfilling, I think, uh, in a way that I don't want to say that uh, that adult fans aren't because you know fans are fans. I, I write these things right. because I love them and it thrills me that other people love them. I love them all. Um, but middle grade, um, you may you may be right until the market changes a little bit. Although I'm going to have some other um, indie middle grade authors on here to challenge that a little bit. Um, but it may be that if you're going to be an indie author, you need to think about publishing both middle grade for your heart and publishing something else that's going to help you out financially. Right. I think in the same lines that you are. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And like I said in the beginning, I think, you know, publishing the book of your heart, whether it's middle grade or, you know, some obscure literary fiction or whatever it happens to be um, that may not have a huge audience does not mean it's not a worthwhile endeavor at all, at all, at all. I, I heavily encourage you to do that because if you don't, let's think about that. You think, well, I wanted to write this book, but. I didn't think that it would sell, and so therefore I didn't. And I mean, what kind of life is that, first of all? And and what does that do to your soul as a writer? You know, that's just not a good place to be. So you gotta go write it. And and if you're writing it, you know, in the indie world, you might as well publish it and let the, you know, whoever it as you can actually reach with it to enjoy it. Um, and you never know where your books are gonna go, too. And that's the like you're saying, the one powerful connection can make all the difference and be, you know, have a much more, a much bigger reward for you as a writer and as an artist compared than is anything related to the numbers of sales or anything like that. I had an email I got here just recently from a, a girl who is like, she told me when I was a child, and this is only like three years ago. <laughs> forever was a, ago. Right, forever to them, right? She's like 16 now and she was, or maybe it was four years ago. She was 12 then. When I was 12, I read one of your books and it, it and this was it happened to be one of my young adult books and it had such an impact on her that she decided she 
wanted to get back into reading because she had she had hated reading prior to that. This won her over to reading, and then she decided she wanted to be an author and she wanted to be a science fiction author, just like me, you know. And so you have that sort of capacity to inspire people. And when you're inspiring children, there's there's a special thing about that that I just love to death. So, you know, and having her send me your, you know, very excited email about this, you know, thing. She's like, and I'm reading more of your books. And I just had to let you know that I, I just moved to a new high school and they have a writing program and I'm so excited, you know, and it's like you get to be, you get to have that connection with people. And I, I love that to pieces. So I would never discourage people from actually writing the books. What I would discourage is thinking that you can make a career of a certain level out of books that are very, very hard to sell. You just really need to like tamp down those expectations so you don't quit or get discouraged, you know, so you can keep, you know, you know okay, I'm going to have to persevere with this and have it be something that, you know, is not going to pay my mortgage, but might be incredibly worthwhile to do anyway. And if you go in with that mindset, you'll have much more joy in the process. And I would think, uh, I always joke, I, I have a background in finance. Uh, so I've led workshops uh, specifically on how to day trade, um, how to how to make money with your money. Uh, and none of those classes started with the first thing you do is write a book. So I would think that the, the, if you're writing a book of any genre, you're already um, stepping away a little bit from the practical into the impractical. And sure. if you're halfway there, if your heart wants to go full way and write middle grade, Godspeed, go write write the books you want to write. Absolutely. So have I inspired you? Or are we going to see uh, more middle grade from Susan K. Quinn? No, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll try harder. <laughs> no, and, and that's not because I don't like middle grade. I do. Um, it's just that I, I really enjoy the works I'm writing. And in fact, I took a month off this last summer to um, do my first ever creative retreat. I'm such a workaholic. Like, I don't take time off ever. So, like, taking a month off was like challenge level for me to actually do that. And, you know, and I had to keep, I had the capacity to do it in terms of like the finances and that stuff sort of thing. So I'm like, if you can do something and it's something you want to do, like get over yourself and go do it. So I did. And I, I spent the whole time doing creative things like learning how to draw or going for walks in the botanical garden and stuff that was like all the things that you were like, well, if I had time, I would go do this. Well, suddenly I had time. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to try those things out. And it was wonderful. And one of the sort of thoughts that bubbled up in that process was um, a, a commitment to taking more risks creatively with my work and stretching out to see where, where were the still pockets that I feared creatively to go and go there. And it's the kind of commitment that I think I couldn't have done earlier on in my career when I was still trying to figure out the market, trying to figure out myself as a writer. And it was, it was like, you had to go, I had to go stepwise to get there. And this was me still going another step because I think, you know, writers can stall out and start writing the same thing over and over again. If, especially if they find something successful, that's almost kind of a trap because it's like, well, that worked. So I should just keep doing that. Well, and, what you really need to do is keep fresh and keep challenging yourself to go somewhere you haven't gone before. So 
I've done middle grade. I don't feel like I need to go back and do that more because there's other vistas that are ahead of me that I haven't explored yet. So I don't know if that's an adequate answer for you or not. But. Well, fair enough. Just know you will be welcome back to middle grade with open arms if you change your mind. All right. Uh, so what, what are the areas that you haven't explored that are still on the horizon? Hmm. Well, um, I touched on it a little bit before about bringing back um, some of my tech expertise from my prior life into my fiction, getting a little more technical with my fiction. And that doesn't mean like, you know, getting super detailed, but more um, just like not being afraid to, to get a little bit more, um, how can I say this, technical, I guess. For example, um, in one of my romances last spring, um, I had a character who was a physicist. And I went ahead and spun up some theories, uh, physical physics theories about other dimensions and got into some of the real technical aspects of that, but put it in a framework that people could understand, you know, your casual reader who isn't even a science fiction reader, right? These are romance readers. They're not looking for highly technical scientific descriptions. But physics is one of those things that you can put in layman's terms, and it can be really cool. So, so is this a scientist that still had piercing blue eyes and her washboard abs and all, and all that good stuff? Well, she or... was female, so no oh, washboard well, abs. Go. But yes, she was still beautiful and amazing. But um, yeah, she was a brilliant scientist, and she had her theories. And then the theories were actually uh, central to the, the story. So they were exploring these theories and she had a personal investment in, you know, making this scientific advancement. And, you know, the the lead, the hero in the story who was, you know, it's a romance. So her partner was, um, you know, had his part to play in that and helping her or and sometimes being an antagonist to her in that. So it was it was integral to the story. It wasn't like, you know, showing off my technical skills for two pages or, or whatever it was it wasn't and that was what made it fun actually it's coming up with theories that had a really sound scientific basis because the story is placed in real life you know it needed to be something plausible but it also had magic in it so i could kind of go that next little piece and say okay how where do we play with that that intersection between science and magic and taking it one more level um and so now that kind of sparked off what uh, I really am trying to do now, which is get more into thrillers. So the romance that I'm writing right now is actually a romantic thriller. And it's almost a biotech thriller because there is all this biotechnology in it. And we are running off into, again, I have a scientist who is, you know, got her genetic editing theories and, integrating magic into it as well, which is lots of fun. And um, it's just really great. I'm just having a lot of fun with that. And the next step for me would be, okay, let's bring that back over to the other side where I've got Susan K. Quinn writing actual science fiction and go for a tech thriller in the science fiction realm with, I don't know, have a romance subplot, I guess, but the main thing will be the tech thriller side of that and have that carry the full arc of the story. So that's that's sort of my next frontier that I'm going to be exploring. So is that kind of the uh, decision-making process when you're looking at an idea and evaluating and saying, okay, well, now, is this a Susan K. Quinn book or is this a book for pen name? Is, is how much of this is, is focused on the romance and how much is focused on the science? 
Uh, no, not really. I, I tend to make decisions about, oops, my pen name, which I'm not going to say. <laughs> um, just like, I'm going to get like, what is that thing in um, Men in Black where they put up the little eraser thing? It's like, you've forgotten what that was. Okay. So, I'm sorry, did you say uh, Regina? Re yeah, Regina, Regina, the romance author? Yeah, no. Um, for her, she is very um, focused on the market. So I'm looking at the market to decide the broad outlines of what I'm going to write now. And I use the haiku analogy a lot where, um, you know, you can be very creative with haiku, but there are certain rules you have to follow or else it's not haiku, right? It has to have five syllables and then seven and then five. If you do something else, it's no longer haiku. It can be wonderful, but it's not haiku. So staying within the lines of what, um, what genre sort of expectations I'm trying to reach uh, for my audience um, is like writing haiku. I have to stay within that sort of stricture, but then within that I can do whatever I like. So um, the new story that I'm writing is I looked at the market and I said, you know, the genre that I've been writing in, which is paranormal romance, uh, has been, you know, really it's still really strong, but it's been waning for a couple of years. So you know, do I want to stay with that because that's where my audience is? Or do I want to try to broaden a little bit and bring in some fresh readers that might then cross over and read some of my older works? So I have all this sort of marketing strategy. And when I was looking at the market, I actually sat down. I spent a week and all I did was analyze what's happening in the romance market right now. And what I came up with was that romantic suspense was kind of the new thing that or one of the new things that was booming. It was very popular. And in fact, there's a spectrum of those as well. So I'm like, well, I think I can intersect with that with my paranormal and sort of cross them a little bit and, and do an experiment. See, can I bring my paranormal readers over to romantic suspense? And will I get new romantic suspense readers that'll still be okay with it being paranormal? I don't know. I'm gonna write a trilogy and see. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's what I'm doing right now is see how that works. And if it doesn't work- Worst scenario, you just had fun, right? Exactly. Oh, I had tremendous fun. Not only that, but I did like training wheels exercise for my tech thriller that I'm gonna write later. Um, which I've already had in the back of my head. So I'm like, oh, well, okay, I'm going to do a little bit of that here. And by the time I get through my trilogy, I'll have written three essentially tech thrillers, but wrapped in a romance package that, you know, so I'll have figured out the art of how to do that. And so when I go back to the science fiction side, I won't be starting from zero. I'll have a pretty good idea of what I want to do and be able to go from there. So, and that, and then my science fiction side is like, I write whatever I want. I don't really care what the market is in general. Like I might write something that's market targeted on under that pen name just for fun, <laughs> just because that would be fun to do too. But I've given myself license to just write what I feel like I want to write over there. And there's a lot of freedom with that. So, what you want to write on the Regina pseudonym side or on the Susan K. Quinn side? Well, on the Susan K. Quinn side. Oh, Susan okay. K. Quinn gets to write whatever she wants. And my pen name is targeted towards making money. She makes the money, so Susan K. Quinn doesn't have to worry about it and has the freedom to write whatever she wants. So, 
That's the so plan. Uh, two questions on the back of that, then. What is a good ratio for those of us who want to be Susan K. Quinn? Um, you know, John Cusack always says that you do, uh, was it two for the studio, one for you? What is a good uh, ratio of how much time you should spend writing your book, the book of your heart, uh, versus the book that's got to pay the bills? Whatever makes you happy. And I can't tell you what that ratio is. Um, I know for me, it changes a lot. You know, sometimes that I have to go write some Susan K. Quinn books because there's a thing I need to write and everything else needs to park it for a while. Um, sometimes I just really want to rev up the business and make some more money for whatever particular reason I'm going to do that. And so I'll, I'll be like, okay, we got to do that. And in fact, my pen name had a very specific um, financial target that she, because I started writing her back in 2014. And so in 2018, I hit that target that I had been planning for all along. And I was like, okay, now that I hit that target, what do I want to do? And that was part of why I went on the retreat was like, what do I want to do with this now? Do I want to keep you know, that pen name going and come up with a new financial target? Or is there something else I want to do with her? And I decided that basically I enjoy writing romance a lot. I really do. And I wanted to play with it more. I wanted to broaden it a little bit and maybe experiment with it. And but also still keep having readers keep, you know, and maybe even set higher targets for that. Like I'd like to hit I set a target for myself of I want to hit the USA Today bestseller list with a new release um, without like all, you know, there's lots of advertising and shenanigans you can try to do to get on the USA Today bestseller list. You know, people do box sets and they do, you know, collaborations and they, you know, long pre-orders and all this kind of stuff. That's all fine. I have like no problem with people doing that. But the target that I wanted to set was considerably harder than that. I wanted to hit something where I just had grown a fan base that was large enough to just hit it as a routine thing, which you see some authors do. It's sort of it's a certain level of success that you get to. And so I'm like, I would like to do that. <laughs> so I'm going to figure out what I would have to do in order to get there. And I'll give myself three years to going back to once again, set a target that something you'd like to try, give your best thoughts to how to make it happen, study what other people have done to make it happen, which I did. I studied bestseller lists and saw who who was hitting it and how and why and what was typical. Not like the theories that you know everybody has about it, but what actually is the data saying that what are the actual people that are making it? How did they actually get there? And then give yourself a deadline. So I've got three years to get it done. If I make it, great. Yay, I made my new target. If I don't make it, okay. Look at why and decide if that's just not something I want to shoot for anymore and move on to something else or whatever. So that's my new thing. <laughs> a couple of, of things there I want to get uh, nerdy, which I think uh, listeners and, and viewers of the show will like. They, they want to know more about what writers are, are up to uh, and get into the nitty gritty. So when you say you're going to go out and analyze the market for Regina suited him to, to go out and write the best book suited for that market, what are the steps that you do uh, to do that? And also, what are the things that you do specifically ahead of a launch to um, put yourself or, or her uh, in the best position to accomplish those goals? 
Um, okay, well, those are two very different questions. So let me take the market analysis one first, because I think that's one that not a lot of people talk about. Um, for me, that meant specifically with the USA Today thing uh, was to just go look at the USA Today bestseller list for any given week, the week that I was working, say, okay, how many of these people in the top 150 books are, is this the first time that they've hit the USA Today bestseller list or the 20th time? And when they, you can go back and find out when they hit with their first book, how long ago was that? And which book was it? Was it the first in a series, the second, the third? Was it the seventh book in a very well-selling series? Was it something they put on sale and had some kind of big promotion for? You know, so look at all the parameters of how they got where they were. And then, and, and you know, are they indie? Are they traditionally published? What price point did they do it at? And I would, I found, <clears throat> so I, I assumed if I had, before I'd done that research, I would have assumed that people hit it who were either just mega sellers that sold all the time or like, you know, whatever. Uh, now the name's escaping me. Um, anyway, mega sellers that sell all the time or someone who did a special promotion. They put their book on sale, they, they paid a lot of advertising money and they hit the list. Turns out that most of the people weren't in either one of those situations. Most of them were authors had been writing for less than 10 years, but had hit the list, had, had hit in with a book or a series, usually the second or third in a series, that had done really well. They had just been really popular for whatever reason. And often it was their first series. <coughs> Excuse me. And then because once they got there, then they had built that fan base and then they kept hitting it by releasing fairly frequently. And then there was a few, <coughs> excuse me, there were a few that had uh, put their books on sale, but that was very unusual. Almost everybody that hits it, hits it full price. And there were a few that had <coughs> hit it a hundred times, but again, those are unusual. You know, so there really was that middle ground. I'm like, okay, so this is something that's that's attainable. It's reasonable. Somebody came on the market with a really good book and a really good plan, and they were able to get there. So, so I, then I modeled my plan over, you know, something similar. Well, okay, what's the hot market? And what would be a great concept? Let's sit and think about that for a while. What would be a really exciting concept that a lot of people would want to buy? And, and are you sitting down and making like a, a spreadsheet of all of this to keep track of it? Or how are you how are you uh, assimilating the data to make these decisions? Hmm. I don't use spreadsheets much. Uh, they feel very constraining to me. Uh, I do use Scrivener a lot because I can put links and images and my rambling notes and then organize it in some kind of file structure and that sort of thing so I can track it all. Um, I think for the USA Today stuff, I actually did have a spreadsheet because I wanted to have a list of like I had columns for every, or line for every book and it would have like the price and the author and the number of times they'd hit the list and just a bunch of data about. So I did that sort of data collection phase. But once I had the data, then I went to more of a narrative format of like, well, this is my interpretation of the data. This is what I understand the data is telling me. I don't here's my you know question. Is this something that everybody does? Is, is this something I can do? 
do they have these features in common? You know, and just I just wrestled with it for a while. I don't know how to describe my mental process better than that. But eventually I distilled it down into um, I have a, an author's assistant and I send her I write her a marketing letter every month that says, here's what we're going to do this month. We're going to buy these ads. We're going to promote this series. We're going to do blah, 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 whatever. And so now I have, as a standing thing since the summer, part of my marketing letter is USA Today. All right, what are we doing this month to move towards that goal? You know, or what's my current understanding of how hard it's going to be and what our strategy should be? So with this new trilogy that I'm launching, this is going to be our first real big experiment of trying to hit the list. Um, you know, what specifically are going to be our launch strategies? What what are we going to do the same that's worked in the past? What are we going to do different for this one? And setting it up so that when the books actually roll out, I can go back and look at what we did and say, okay, that worked or that didn't work. And now, you know, let's let's pivot and come up with a different strategy for the next trilogy. Or if it's working, if it's working great, then the I've designed a trilogy so that I can build on it. So I can do like books four, five, and six after that and keep building that momentum. But if it's not working, then I can end it there and I can pivot to something else. Oh no! We are being uh, uh, bombed by uh, my, my cat Mabel who just fell off the desk <laughs> into a trash can. But she's all right, she's scurrying off that way. So if you're hearing that little bell, that, that's her. That's brilliant, that's a little, <laughs> into the trash can no less. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> um, Oh my God, uh, Mabel, you've distracted us terribly. I had uh, so many follow-up questions to that, and now they've all escaped me. Um, so, well, let me ask you this: how How long is the time between when you finish your final draft, have that edited, copy edited, all that good stuff, um, and the time that you launch? Is there a long window or relatively short? When do you When do you start preparing for your launch versus when you're just creating the product? It depends a lot on if I'm doing pre-orders. If I'm doing pre-orders, then um, you know, no more than 10 days ahead, it has to be done, or no less than 10 days ahead, because that's when you have to upload. Um, and sometimes I, boy, I scrape right up against that deadline because I've managed to have life interfere and not get the book done as quickly as it needs to. Um, but like, for example, I'm already done with book one in this series and it's not Mar it's not releasing until March. And that's because I've laid out a plan of how to, you know, attack this this goal that we have. And that involves having a longer pre-order and having time between books to do certain kinds of promotion. And it's, you know, so it just really depends on what what the plan is. Some books I don't have pre-orders at all and I just release them when I'm done because people are either waiting for them or I just, I'm done and I want them out there because I I want the world to read it you know, or something like that. Um, so it really depends. I, I wouldn't say, the thing that people miss is not that they didn't launch it short enough or long enough or in a particular way, it's that they didn't have a plan in the first place. Like I, I've seen people come and they're like, I launched a book, I uploaded, I'm so excited. Now, how do I market it? And I'm like, dude, 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 you should have thought of this months ago. <laughs> like how you're gonna market it. Don't wait until after you've published the book 
to decide to come up with a plan of how to market it. Now, that's really hard to do when you're new in the field, right? It's like your first book. How are you supposed to know? Well, I didn't know either. And I still made a plan. <laughs> it was a, probably a good plan in some ways and a bad plan in other ways. But that was the whole idea is make a plan and figure out what the good and bad parts are and then do it again. And another problem I see with authors is sometimes they're like, well, I'm just going to try it. Uh, I'm going to dip my toe into the waters and see if it's warm. And then I'm going to scurry away if things don't go great, you know. But if it's magic and everything is wonderful, then I'll stay. And it's like, no, 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 no. You can't do that either. You've got to make a commitment to get in the pool. Just, just get in the pool and do the thing and see how it works. And then you can make a reasoned decision of like, well, do I actually enjoy being in the pool or does it? Did I almost drown and it sucked and now like I never want to do pools again. You know, that's that's when you can make a rational choice about whether this publishing thing is for you after you've actually done it a little bit. I think most people when they get in, they have a bad experience and then they're like, that's it, I'm done. Which and is great for, for folks like us that feel the market might be a little overcrowded anyway. <laughs> Wonderful. You've tried that. Go do something that makes you happy. Leave, right. leave the space open for the rest of us. Right. Well, I'm not super worried about competing with people so much as I just want them to actually find something they enjoy. You know, like, don't do this if it makes you miserable. It is not like it's not worth it. <laughs> you know, like the only reason to do this is if you actually enjoy it. You know, it's just too much hard work otherwise. So. Well, let me, uh, let me ask to just to refine and give some kind of strategy because you're coming at this now. Well, it, it sounds like if, if I'm hearing you right, one, it's good to have a plan and execute it on it, even if it's the wrong plan, as opposed to having no plan and just throwing your hands up and, and doing the best. Am I hearing that right? Yes, that's what I call hope marketing. Don't do hope marketing. Hope marketing is like, I hope it works. <laughs> it's Every like, once you know, in a while, a there's, there's an Andy Weir. <laughs> but we, we can't all yeah. be Andy Weir, tragically. Uh, but then let me ask you this. So now that you, you, you've you done, this isn't your, your first rodeo. You've done this several times quite successfully. So bringing that knowledge in with your new project, uh, you, you said you're going to launch book one in March. So when then do you plan to launch book two and book three? And at what stages of completion are those books? Um, I'm only two chapters into the second book right now. And uh, so I need to, and right now I'm not even working on the book. I'm doing estate planning and taxes and the business side. Um, but the second book is going to launch 90 days after I finish it. And I have that set. That's unusual for me that it's that specific. Um, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is I want to leave enough time between book one and book two that I can set book one free and try to get a book bub. And if I get a book bub and that pumps up the pre-orders for book two, then it has a better chance of hitting the list. All right. So I want to leave some time for that. But I also have, um, for the first time for me, it's the first for me under either pen name, um, I have Audible is got a contract. I've got a contract with Audible to produce the audiobooks. And they want to produce them so that they're ready at release of the ebook. So this is exciting. I'm excited about this. Um, and I've already shipped the first book off to them, but they need like 90 days to from the time they get the book till the time they can release the book. 
to do the production. So my my thought process is I'll finish the book, book two, whenever I finish it, hopefully soon. And then 90 days from then, Audible will have their 90 days to do the, the audio book. And that'll give me enough time with my other marketing too. So it kind of all works. And it'll be the same for book three as well. Um, little unusual situation there. So what would work for a particular book in general if you're not doing pre-orders, so like I'm doing pre-orders because I'm wide, okay? I'm on all the retailers. And that's a really important strategy is having free books and, and doing pre-orders, really important if you're wide. If you're in KU, Kindle Unlimited, and you're exclusive to Amazon, um, much more important to get books out fast. So I would be publishing these books every month, probably, every 30 days to take advantage of the momentum that comes from Kindle Unlimited boosting you up and being on the new release list and stuff like that. So different strategies depending on how you're releasing or where I guess you're releasing the book. That makes sense. I think so. So how, uh, let me ask you this. Um, I know you write about 500,000 uh, words a year on average. Is that right? Yeah, I was a little off this year. I had some personal life things that interfered with my usual productive uh, output. I'm, I'm vowing or hoping, I guess, that 2019 will allow me to get back to that standard productivity because I'm happier when I'm writing and, you know, not so happy when I have to go take care of my mom in the hospital <laughs> and stuff like that. So, um, but I'm hoping that life will allow me to, to be productive again. But yes, I'm a very productive writer. And I it's because that's where my happy place is. And I worked really hard to, to get to that productivity level where I, my creative process, I like hacked my creative process in order to unleash at, at whatever is best for me. Everybody has to work in their own process, right? So whatever works for your process, do that. Don't you don't have to follow me. You don't have to hit a certain production rate to whatever be successful. Um, everybody works a different way, and even I work a very different way on different books. Some books just require a lot more work than other books do, and it may not be because they're better books, or sometimes it's because they're more complicated books. But oftentimes it's more about me. It's like okay, now this is a thriller, which I've never written a thriller before. So now I need to go off and do more, you know, craft work of really understanding thriller structure and watch a bunch of movies that are thrillers and study a bunch of books. And, you know, like there's a whole learning curve thing there that I didn't wouldn't have to do if I was just writing another paranormal romance, which I've written, you know, a dozens of them before. So, um, you know, you have to, and it depends. If this is like you're, you haven't written more than a, couple of books, you're still learning how to write a book, <laughs> you know, like that's going to take time and uh, don't sweat that. You just, you need to just do what you can do for you. So I totally how derailed you would on it that. Be if, you, if you got to a stage where everything was pre-planned, you knew exactly what you were going to do from the start on every book. There was never anything new. I, at that point, you might as well just go make widgets on an assembly line, right? I suppose. That's the whole idea of staying fresh, right? This is why I'm writing romantic thrillers, which I have never written before. Um, that's why I'm doing tech thrillers next, because it's new. Whatever you have to do to stay fresh. Some people can stay fresh while staying in the same genre and writing the same kind of book, and they just 
they have a way of doing that that works for them. And, you know, and then some people don't. I mean, I think we all know of authors that we loved. And then, like, at some point, you're like, you're just phoning it in, man. <laughs> you're just you're just writing the same book that you wrote a hundred times before. Why are you doing that? You know, don't do that. So once in a while, an author will slip into that and then come back and, and win me back again, which I'm always excited to see. And then I figure it was it was worth it, whatever they had to work out. Right. If I had to put up with a couple of Tommy knockers to get to the stand to get to needful things, that's fine. Go ahead and, and, and write that terrible book. So one off, it's but you've earned it. Right, sure. <laughs> Absolutely. So what uh, what does your typical writing day look like and how long does it take you on average uh, to complete a book? Well, again, totally depends on the book. Um, my last Mindjack book that I wrote, because um, I came back five years after the first trilogy and wrote a second trilogy. And so the, the sixth book in that series was so intense emotionally for me to write that damn book. I was so resistant to writing that book that like it was just it took me probably five months to work through writing that book. <laughs> and it wasn't like because I couldn't get the words on the page. It was just like uh, I was mentally having a hard time with it. Um, and it, it just exacted a lot from me. Um, and then I, when I was done with that, I sat down and wrote a trilogy of romances, and I wrote three books of 50,000 words, of, well, 50 to 60,000 words apiece in two months. So it was just like bang, 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 because I knew what I wanted to do, and I was energized, and it was like new material, and it didn't have this emotional drain thing going on where I had like this this internal conflict I was fighting. I was I was just free to go. And this is where I was writing, you know, the physicist and, you know, other it wasn't like they were not complex books. It wasn't like they were not, you know, emotional books. They were just a different kind of emotional thing that I wasn't resisting. So then when I go to this like next um thriller that I was writing, um, that took me, I expected it to take a month to write and it took four months to write. And that was completely because had nothing to do with the book or me as a writer. It was completely because my life got ex insane with, you know, life stuff that was unavoidable. And so it just took longer to do because I didn't have as much time to write. Typically I write during the day when my kids are at school and that gives me a good six hours a day to write but you know not always <laughs> and six hours a day and then you you put it aside because the kids are home and it's family time or do you come back to it after that um generally i put it aside because i really want to be present with the people who are important in my life and so that's important to me. And not only that, my brain needs a rest. My brain needs to not be constantly churning the creative stuff because I will exhaust my brain. And if I want to come back the next day and be fresh and be able, this is part of hacking your creative process, you know, is knowing when to turn it off and then being able to turn it back on and on and off. That, that switch is knowing your own switch is really key to, I think, being getting to the place where you're doing your best work. And and that's where I always want to be. I want to be doing my best work when I sit down and work on stuff. So are we talking six hours straight or do you have structured breaks or just breaks as they become necessary? Oh, I break all the time. In fact, if I'm sitting for more than 45 minutes, I, I set a timer and I force myself to get up and move because it's just bad for my body. 
to sit for that long, right? So I get up and I move and I have a, a mental break. I very forcefully try to, you know, I'll leave myself a little note. And I know I'm getting to the end of my 45 minutes or sometimes I'll let it go a little longer. And if I'm in a really good spot and I'm in the, the flow of it, but then I'll stop and I'll leave myself a little note says, okay, these are the things that are gonna happen next. Now go take a break. And it, it works beautifully because the time that I'm off not thinking about the book, there's still, it loosens up my mind to make connections that I wouldn't have made before so that when I come back and sit down again, boom, I am ready to go. And the, the stuff is just flowing out again. So, so you're doing yeah. maybe a 45 minute sprint, just you're sitting down, you're, you're not checking your internet, you're focused 100 percent, spreading out words. Yes. And then how long does it break? Five, 10 minutes where you move around and, and get some coffee or whatever it is you're doing on your break? I try to do like 45, 15. If I'm, and during my 15 minutes, I do not check the internet. I do not check Facebook. I go sweep the kitchen or get some tea or, you know, just move around and do stuff mentally different. Um, so I'll do that 45, 15 routine for a few hours and then I'll take a lunch break for an hour. And, you know, then I might look at the internet or I might, you know, do something and make myself a lunch and, then I come back for another few hours of, you know, doing that. So I probably don't even get a full six hours of actual focused writing time in. I like to, if on a good day, I will have that for sure. But it doesn't always work out that way. You know, life is what it is. And I don't. It's working out just fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is actually, you know, for the most part, the things that I can't control, I can't control. And, you know, that. Life isn't always, I don't want people to think, you know, oh, Sue's life is always perfect and wonderful and amazing. I mean, I have struggles just like everybody has struggles. And, um, you know, I think it's important to keep creating even when you have struggles and then to be kind to yourself when you can't hit whatever your goals are, be kind and say, hey, you know what, you're trying. You'll be back and trying again more when you can. So that's my philosophy at least. Makes sense to me. If only I could uh, apply it to myself as well and and be more forgiving. Uh, but I gotta say, um, it is it. I've been evaluating uh, a lot of authors. That's always been one of my main motivations for running the blog and now doing this podcast video show thing. Mm -hmm. um, is I chat with authors. Uh, lots of different authors, and then it's like uh, I was thinking it was like tagging a bee and then letting them go back to the hive and, and checking in with them later. So if I've if I've had you at the blog two years, three years from now, I remember what you said in your interview. Let me go see how that panned out for you. And sometimes, oh yeah, you said really smart things in the interview that made sense to me. And now look at you three, four years later, that has panned out. And other authors I, I see differently. And you know, we were talking about uh, fairy swap, and even though that doesn't sound like didn't have quite the um, success that you had envisioned for it, you still went at it. I mean, you had a, a card game uh, that you developed just for the book that kids could play, uh, mm -hmm. as opposed to authors I've seen that have, you know, publishing contracts uh, that, that a lot of writers would kill for. They've got the, the world's biggest publisher. They've got Scholastic. They've got Random Penguin behind them. They've got all the libraries in check. Everything's panning out for them. And what are they doing? Watching Netflix all day. And it doesn't make sense to me. So there, there has to be something because you are far more successful than people I talked to at the same time when I first started talking to you. So there has to be something to that work ethic. Now, when we're talking six hours, is that just Monday through Friday and then weekends with the fam or is that every day? 
Um, it that varies too. Like when early on in my career, I worked a lot harder. I worked more like 10, 12 hours a day on either marketing or writing um, because I was obsessed. <laughs> okay, I was a workaholic and I was obsessed and I loved to write. And the business was exciting because it was new and you know, so I spent a lot of really hard time. And I would say the first well, the first two years, all I did was learn how to write. And I was just like stealing minutes whenever I could to learn how to write and to write my books. And then the first few years after that, it was the business part and it was every minute of every day. And I burned out on that pretty bad. Um, I never stopped writing and I never stopped publishing, but emotionally I was really on the edge because I was just so tired and I, I'm like, okay, and my health was like not doing great because of it, because I wasn't getting up and moving like I should and stuff like that. So a few years ago, I had to have like a reckoning of like, if I really want to do this for the long term, I have got to be have more balance in my life. You know, I have to. And it wasn't I didn't want to slow down. OK, because I'm too ambitious for that. So I had to scale up my efficiency. And that was part of why I started hacking my process. I'm like, how can I get more writing done more effectively in the same amount of time so that I can have that balance so I can go and have time with my family and, you know, not have this 24 seven stress thing going on. Um, so I feel like I've done actually a pretty good job of that in the last year. And um, so now my life looks like, um, I do that writing when my kids are at school. I take time off when, like, my college-age son comes home for a week. Well, you know what? I'm going to take off extra time, and I'm going to spend it with him, and that's really okay. And the books will get written when they get written. Um, at the same time, here I am, like, in 2019, I'm like, I really want to get some books written. <laughs> I really want to, like crank some of those out again because I've spent the time I had to with some family issues. I mean, my mom was in the hospital and my mother-in-law passed away and was in hospice for a long time. So there's a lot of family demands that were like really important to pay attention to at that time. But those are kind of, we're kind of getting past those now. And I'm like, okay, it's time for me to get back to be able to be the productive person I know how to be. And it really, you know, diving deep into that again. But at the same time, I want to keep my, you know, exercise and eating routines, you know, that are very, my meditation, I'm very into meditation and all the healthy things that I know how to do. And at the same time, also, I've got kids that are heading off to college. I want to spend time with them and make sure, you know, we really have that connection before they go off into the world. And so, well, nobody wants to hit all their writing goals, win all the awards, get all the money, and then get to the end, and your health is, is terribly deteriorated. Right. And you're looking around like, all right, who do I tell about all this exciting stuff I did? Oh, I'm alone. I, right. I, I, I got everyone. Uh, everyone left me. You got to have a life. You know, we really do. And I think as writers, it's a huge danger for us because we are so interior, right? We're in our heads with our stories, and it's a beautiful place, and we love it, you know, but we need to get out, too and not forget that connection because it fuels the inside as well. And, you know, I want to write, I want to live to be a hundred because I have that many more books to write. You know, it's like, I'm here, I'm in this for the long haul. So I got to go do my meditation. So I'm like, not so stressed. So I can actually be productive and write the books that are calling to me. 
So I hope that people will do that. I know indie publishing is so intense and, and the the drive to publish, publish, publish is so intense and it's monetarily rewarded, which just makes it worse. <laughs> okay, because now, now it's like, well, yeah, sure. If I actually kill myself writing these books super fast, um, the market will reward me for that financially, right? How do you say no to that? Well, it's really easy. You say no. <laughs> I'm not going to well, do that. Uh, without getting crass, because you, you did go through that 12-hour-a-day workaholic uh, phase, and you have been rewarded financially for it. Have you gotten to a point where the finance is not is no longer the primary concern, and you can relax a little bit? Is that going hand-in-hand hand with this, this need to back off a little bit? No, because um, I'm fortunate that my husband has a great job and good insurance, and I never had to actually make money. So the money that I have made has gone towards funding my kids, you know, college, which is fantastic. And we would have been financially a little, a lot more strapped if, if I hadn't done that, right? Um, the money actually has always been somewhat optional for me, which is not the case for a lot of people, right? I mean, like, oh my God, most, and, and I would say it's not the case for almost everyone in reality. Most people in reality can have a job that pays the bills and they can write part-time. Writing part-time is very viable and it's, you know, you're not going to do it fast, but you will, you know, you can do it. You can still do it and you can still publish and you can still have a career and like a side career doing that. Um, so it's not like you have to have writing pay the bills in order to write. You know, writing can be freed from having to pay the bills. But most people don't want that. They want writing to pay the bills. <laughs> they want writing to be, you know, that's good. And partly because they want to write full time, which I totally understand. I would have had a really hard time if I couldn't have spent all that time. You know, so spending that time came from not from a need to pay the bills. It came from just this extreme passion that I had. I've always been a workaholic, but it has never been about paying the bills. It's always been because I love my work so much that I just like want to do it all the time. <laughs> and it's a, a little obsessive. <laughs> it's not necessarily a good thing. OK, um, it pays off because it, it helps having that grit and that, you know, work ethic. But it has some downsides, too, that I'm I'm learning to compensate for. So I'm just more of a healthy person. Um, so I, I have the opposite problem. I'm too healthy. I need to be more of a workaholic. So somewhere in the in the middle is the way is the spot for us to get to. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, discipline is a thing and it's um, some people struggle with it more than others. And I, I guess I would say I, I, I don't have that problem so much. Um, so it's hard for me to speak to it. But what I would say is try to be more in the, the zone of where I feel like when you're in love with someone, when you meet someone for the first time and you're in love with this person, you're enamored with them and they're just like so cool. You just want to be with them. You don't have to like force yourself to find time to be with them. Right. You just you make time to be with them because they are so cool, right? Fall in love with your manuscript. If you're not in love with the process of writing, with with producing your work, you need to like search a little harder to find 
where your passion is with that work. I love this work that I'm working at right now. It's killing me that I have to do, you know, taxes. Like, what the hell? Why do I have to do taxes? I could be writing a medical thriller. That is totally worth my time, <laughs> you know? Like, I and I want to do it not because it's going to make money for me, but because it's cool and fun. And I really like these two characters. And I really want to see how they get together. And I really want to play with the whole genetic editing thing, because that is super cool. So that's where my passion comes out. And the passion gets me like sitting down and wanting to like tap, tap, tap out and make it happen. So, so where are you in terms of, um, cause obviously you're, you've got a plan series. I assume there's some form of an outline and a plan going in. Where do you fall on that spectrum between um, a diligent plotter and just writing by the seat of your pants room? I'm somewhere in between. I think most people are somewhere in between. Um, so I'll have, I do a lot of research for my books too. So I kind of count research as plotting in a way. Um, I had to do a lot of like, for this particular series, <clears throat> I had to do a lot of world building first before I could even get to the point of writing my characters and doing backstories for my characters and then having some kind of plot. Like I had no idea where the plot was going. I just knew I had really cool characters and a really cool world. <laughs> and now they had to go do something. And I had to figure that out as I went. Um, so the plot was actually a lot more pantsed as I went through it. And because it was a thriller, I had to go back and do actually more editing than I normally would have to um, because it was so pantsed to get there. Um, normally, I'll I'll have sort of a, a five point outline, like five critical points in the story that I kind of know what's going to happen and or at least in the general sense. And and then I'll start working chapter by chapter and like write a lot of times I have to write the first couple of chapters to sort of set the, the scene, you know, set it up. And when I, once I'm happy with that, that gives me a vector of where the story's going. And then I can like plot out, okay, from now until the midpoint, these are, these are the things that are going to happen. I might only vaguely know what's going to happen in the second half of the book. <laughs> I know where it's going to end, but you know, like that in between part, uh, it's a little mushy. You know, so in so a series, I, you know, you know, the beginning of the first book and then, you know, what's going to happen the last scene of the last book. And then that whole middle is just we'll see. Well, usually I know my midpoint. Okay. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of um, the idea of having the midpoint be a pivot in the book where you're going to have some dramatic reveals. You're going to have your characters discover some things about themselves and they need to like go from the beginning of this, which may be them being dragged through, it's sort of an emotional pivot point between when they're being dragged through, they discover something about who they really are and make a commitment to doing the rest of the story. And so that pivot point often will define the, the structure of the whole story, actually, because that's like almost the most important part. Not really, but you know, it's it's high up there. So I usually know the beginning and the pivot and and the end and maybe a couple of sort of key scenes in between that that just sort of come to me. That happens a lot, too. But other than that, you know, I figure it out as I go. So. And then how much uh, time are you spending in revision? Um, again, really depends on the book. Um, when I was revising Mindjack, 
number six, the book that almost killed me. Um, the, a lot of the killing part was in revisions. And like, oh God, I can't make this work. It's not working. It's not working. Um, <clears throat> so I struggled a bit with that one. Um, sometimes I'll write a book and it is just exactly what I wanted from tail to stern and it's just done. And I'm like, okay. All right, we're done with that one. <laughs> I don't, I mean, I like, I read through them, you know, to make sure I haven't done something stupid, like, you know, change a character name halfway through or something. I've done that a couple of times. Um, are you but, revising as you go or do you, are you big on finish and then revise? Um, I guess I'm a revise as I go in a way. I mean, I don't, I like to finish a chapter and I'll like read over it a few times, make sure it all flows and that kind of thing. But um, I don't do major revisions as I go because often I don't know, like I need to like, especially if you're pantsing your way through a story, there might be some key thing at the end or like, Oh, I got to go back and fix that at the beginning and get it all to work. But I haven't done like really, I, I don't do, I guess I should say really large scale revisions in general. I usually know my story better than that before I get to that. So if there is like some huge thing in the third act that, oh my God, now I have to change everything in the first act. That has happened, um, but I'm not- sorry. <laughs> Yeah, I know, right? You're like, oh God, I'm gonna go cry for a while. Um, but not often and not since I, you know, I, I know how to tell stories better than that now. Uh, after 34 books, I kind of have the sense of how to avoid that particular tangle. Um, which is why actually figuring out the first couple of chapters is usually where I spend a lot of time. Those first two chapters will take me way more time than, you know, the last half of the book even sometimes. Because by that point, I'm like, oh, yes, it's the race to the finish. And I know, da -da 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 -da, you know, and I'm off to banging it out. So I've learned that my suffering can be alleviated if I turn in about the first half uh, the first two thirds of my manuscript to my critique group rather than finishing it and then turning it in. Because if I can get that feedback from them while I'm still writing, um, then I can incorporate it and, and make earlier changes and save myself a lot of time on the back. And are you using uh, critique partners and beta readers? No. And uh, in fact, I stopped doing that a while ago, like probably after my first five or six novels. Was I, it because of the critique I gave you? I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it was because um, I was too fast. Honestly, I was burning them out because I wanted and needed more critique than, or more um, people to read my manuscript than, uh, than I could do in return partially. And also with just, you know, people don't have time to read your manuscript. So they're, they're doing their own works, which is great. And for a while, um, I had a paid editor who I would use instead to do that. Although I have never used a paid editor for my romance. My romance has always been just me doing it solo. And that was partly Not because- even a copy editor? No, actually, which people are like, oh God, no, you don't use a copy editor. You're one of those. Um, <laughs> it's because- That's this person, it's working. Keep doing what you're doing. That's, that's one reason. Um, and part of it is because I have developed a process to cap catch my typos and, you know, I know how to like, I am a copy editor basically. All right. So I can read my own book to a certain extent and catch stuff. 
Um, I also use like WordRake and um, Grammarly to catch typos and stuff like that. And, you know, in the end, there's a certain amount that you're never going to catch. So it's like, I'm like, I'm going to get, you know, I could keep reading through this. I could give it out to a copy editor, which I've done. I mean, I've used copy editors as a, like on a trial basis with those books. I'm like here, copy edit, see if you can find any more errors in it. And then they like, come back and they're like finding two things. And I'm like, you know, <laughs> okay, we're at, we're at 98% or 99%. You know, we don't need to keep belaboring that. So I have a process to try to catch the errors that I want to catch. Um, but that's not really editing. That's copy editing is just like proofing your book. Um, the editing editing, I kind of, I, I got away from that because I really got to a point as a writer where I know how to write what I want to write. All right. So the books that the, I, I know when the book has reached the point where it is the thing that I want it to be. And because I'm a self-published writer, <laughs> I can publish it that way. Like, I don't have an editor that's going to come back to me and tell me, hey, your market isn't going to like, you know, the romance you have here, you have to change it. Or, you know, you have to dumb down this section to make it more understandable to your readers or whatever. Like, I don't have to put up with that. I can publish the books as I want to publish them. It's one of the beautiful things about being a self-published author. Well, don't so, you feel at a loss because we all know that editors consistently put out only great best-selling books. And and, and and so their wisdom should never be questioned, right? Right. Well, <laughs> I mean, I, I have friends who are editors, I and I think they do wonderful service for people. And, you know, and if there was a book I was writing, which which there may be in my future, I've, I've got an, a friend who's an editor and I've said, you know, I'm going to do a book with you someday. And it's going to be a book that I'm not quite sure about. It's going to be a book where I'm, I'm stretching so far that it's outside my comfort zone and I'm going to need someone to come in and tell me, you know, where I'm where I'm succeeding and where I'm failing to give me that benchmark. And he's like, hey, whenever you're ready, I'm ready. You know, so so they're cool. Right. I mean, and 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 some people need editors just to tell them they're doing OK. And that's fine, too. You know, it's like whatever whatever your process is, I have no judgments about that. You do what works for you and party on. <laughs> so. Well, I aspire to, to Susan K. Quinness. Unfortunately, I have several blind spots um, that I've, I've worked a lot over the years to get better at, but I just, I need that 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 impartial set of eyes that hasn't been working on my, my book of my heart for the past six months that can come in fresh and, and see the things that I've missed. Right, well, sure. Absolutely. And, you know, and that's part of knowing yourself, too. Right. You know, I have a friend, another friend who is like, I just can um, she needs someone to do like line editing because she like will mix words sometimes, like put them backwards from what they're supposed to be. And she can just never catch them. So she's like, I need someone to just read for that just to make sure that I haven't done some weird word thing. You know, so everybody has their their spots that they need they or most people will have a spot that they need some help with and that people actually can help with. So if it's something that other people can help you with and you have those people, then of course, why not? Right. Go for that. So. No, no, it's, uh, it's however you want to do it, baby. Uh, I have a, an acquaintance who uh, scandalizes me, uh, but it's working. Uh, he, uh, 
uh, will publish his book. And then if it begins to sell and he knows that he's honed in on the market, then he hires an editor. So I'll read the reviews and there'll be things like this character's name switched three times during the manuscript. I couldn't believe the number of errors, but what a compelling story. Five stars. I, I couldn't get enough of it. And if it's working, who am I to say that that's not exactly what he should be doing? Right. Hey, whatever, whatever works for you. You know, this is part of having the wild west of indie publishing is that people can try stuff like that or whatever. And, you know, it's all on you. I have uh, so many burning questions. There's one that I, I will never forgive myself if I don't make sure I get. I'm gonna I'm gonna read it to you exact because um, I, I I follow your Facebook religiously. Like I say, I I consider Susan, anyone listening or watching. I consider Susan K. Quinn to be a guru. You should be taking notes during this. Um, but you've got a, a thing that you posted on Facebook. You said another news. I think oh nope, I'm reading the wrong one. That's terrible. Uh, you know. Those shows where they remodel your kitchen or design a custom fish tank or in some way have experts come in and revamp everything. Uh, I could totally do a show like that only for indie publishing. With a budget of $2,000 in three months time, I'd take someone's portfolio and make it sparkle and sell and launch them into a new phase of their business. How would you do that and what would you charge to do it for me? <laughs> <laughs> I won't charge anyone, including you, to do it. Um, I have done it in the past, actually. I will take on um, little cases of people that need some help with, and it's always specific to whatever their situation is. I had a friend once whose, you know, husband had, was in a terrible accident, and she had all these medical bills, and they were both, you know, really cash-strapped, and her, because of that, her book business was flailing, and I said, well, you know, let me give you a hand here. Let me see what I can do to help out, and we can get that boosted up again and then help you out a little bit. So, you know, I'll do that kind of stuff every once in a while just to help a friend. Um, and so I know that I could. <laughs> I know that this is something that I can do. And it would be kind of fun to do, to be like, you know, do it in a sort of entertainment kind of way, right? Where, you know, here's the, the before and the after and then like actually walk through the process of what would you do if you like had a, you know, a author that say wrote, uh, a trilogy of fantasy novels and then another a second trilogy of high fantasy novels or something like that slightly different but not still still in the same genre um, I would do things like look at their covers see if they're on genre see if they're on genre for today because genres or covers change what the co cover conventions are change I would look at you know descriptions and titles and uh, pricing and you know all that sort of marketing package stuff and then I would look at the inside and say okay is this hitting the market or is it you know you've it looks like a fantasy book but it's really science fiction or it's really romance you know you've miscategorized this book as to what it really is delivering for the reader so let's look at that and see you know could we just revamp the whole thing call it something different and you know not republish it but like do a relaunch and do some aggressive pricing, do some ads, you know, buy a bunch of ads for it, um, stuff like that. So the $2,000 is like, boy, that's a lot of advertising that you can buy for $2,000, actually. Um, I don't do like Facebook ads or AMS ads. I'm not into the per click ads at all, because you can like just 
flush money down the drain with those very quickly. But if you're not doing that kind of advertising, if you're buying things like newsletter ads or uh, like BookBub ads, you know, 2000 actually goes a pretty long ways. And um, you can also spend that money on refreshing covers, get some inexpensive but quality looking covers. And um, usually people are, are making some fundamental mistakes that are easy to fix or easy to identify at least. What are the uh, most common mistakes that you're seeing? Uh, bad covers or uh, bad descriptions. Descriptions that don't aren't compelling at all. Like they're not really exciting. Like you want something to just be like, oh my God, this is amazing. I have to read this book. <laughs> you know, if you don't have that response to your, you know, if it's like, well, it does adequately describe what actually happens. No, that's not, <laughs> that is not acceptable. All right. I'm not excited. Reader, about we're going to get to the end of the book and go back to the description. Oh yeah. Check, check, check. check you you yes, nailed everything on there. Accurate. Yep. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> um, so just, having a sense of who their market is a lot of people are like well i can't categorize my book it's not a romance and it's not science fiction it's some combination of every book is some combination of everything okay every book is the question is how are you going to market this book and who are you going to appeal to to try to lure in to reading the book and are they going to be the kind of people who will be glad that they did because oh yes, I love this kind of book and this delivered just what I expected in terms of an experience, right? Uh, they wanna be surprised by the actual story, but they don't wanna be surprised by the experience. You don't want, a romance reader is not excited to be surprised that their romance ends in tragedy, okay? They're not gonna be happy with you. The science fiction reader is not gonna be excited that he actually got a, horror novel right if you know there's there's science fiction horror then that's fine that's a that's a subcategory but like let people know <laughs> that it's horror before you get into that and they're like oh wait a minute i don't like this this is not what i expected you know so you have to understand your audience to some extent and that is something that i think a lot of especially first-time authors they want to write a book and they're excited that they did write a book and and that is very cool but um they don't really know anything about the business. And even when I like say, well, okay, well, what category on Amazon, what specific category on Amazon are you hoping that this book will be the bestseller of? And they're like, well, romance. And I'm like, that is nowhere near specific enough, <laughs> you know? So you need to be like, have a very specific idea of where you want to chart. You know, what readers do you think, even if I'm like in the, paranormal romance subcat of romance there's still like five different um not listed categories there's uh reverse harem there's traditional pack stories there's you know there's a bunch of different categories that are the only way you know about those are by actually reading the list or looking at the list and reading just the descriptions on the top 100 books that doesn't take that long you know, but by the time you get through 100 descriptions of romance books in a category, you will have some idea <laughs> of what is going on why, and why those books are selling. There's some common threads there. So that's... So how much time uh, are you spending on your own descriptions? Well, that's not really a good measure because <laughs> <'cause laughs> I'm 
experienced at it, right? Like I usually when I have a new book um, and I got to write a description, I wait till I'm done with a book, first of all. Well, not always. Sometimes I'll write it ahead of time because I have a very strong feeling of, of how to pitch the book. But usually I'll wait until I write the book. And then as I'm done and I'm sort of like, my brain is reeling from the doneness part of the book. <laughs> um, I will take an hour. It's still, still an exciting feeling, even 34 books in, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But it, it, it's it's a kind of a like a letting go process, right? Because it's like, now I'm done. I can't work on that anymore. I'm done. Like, and stop working on it. <laughs> like, brain, stop. Stop writing that story. So I'll sit down, and it'll take me usually an hour to come up with something. And I'll have to rework it a few times in that. And sometimes it's harder and sometimes it's easier. But, <clears throat> excuse me, um, that's about how long it takes me. And sometimes I will go through and rewrite descriptions as part of, a, of an overhaul. Like, I just did this recently for some books I'd written four years ago. I came back and I wanted to redo the covers. And I even changed the titles and changed the series. I changed all of it. I changed everything because it wasn't selling as well. It had never really sold great, but it done okay. Um, it actually did really great when it first released, but you know, that was four years ago. And now I was trying to Is get a book. Is this a pen name series that we, yes. we can't know the title? Okay. But I can, I can tell this story about an SKQ series. So let's do that. Um, okay. Almost the same story with my third daughter series. With that one, I did, it's um, third daughter, second daughter, first daughter is the trilogy. And, and third daughter is available to download as an ebook right now for free anywhere books are sold, right? Yes. Um, and when I wrote it originally, I wrote it as a steampunk romance, okay? And so in my mind, steampunk was a very important part of that story. And so I marketed it as a steampunk story which is an actual niche. And mine was pretty cool because it was not your traditional steampunk that's in like 19th century England or London even, just very specific, like a certain kind of feel to it. This was much different. It was, uh, it wasn't even on earth. It was a fantasy that was in an alternate world that had, uh, where it was like if, if India was split into three different countries, um, that's what, the world was and these three different countries had you know complex political relationships and there was this uh overarching monarchy that ruled in each of them and anyway so then there was a romance there's a princess and she has a romance with the the prince from another country and there's all this intrigue and spying and all kinds of fun things so it was cool it was a great fun book trilogy but in my mind it was steampunk so I marketed a steampunk. I made these great steampunk covers. And the problem with steampunk is that it's just a little tiny market, a little tiny niche. And it did okay, but it didn't do great. And I was very disappointed because I was like, oh, this is such a cute story. I want like lots of people to read it. And so after like two or three years of trying to get, figure out how to market it, like buy different advertising or do different you know, get together with other steampunk authors and do an anthology, you know, like all these different things I tried, nothing was really working. I finally said, you know, I just need to look at the market and see who would like this book. Well, it was a royal romance. 
And there are lots of royal romances out there. And that's a whole huge genre, subgenre that I hadn't even really thought about. So instead of being a steampunk book that was also romance, this was really a romance that also had steampunk elements, which actually made it historical fiction. So historical romance is a whole different thing. I'm like, oh, it is. It's a historical kind of romance. And so I redid the covers. I redid the descriptions. Um, the inside of the book is exactly the same. I changed nothing. And it sells great now. It gets book bubs. It's like people love the book. And the people who read it are so disappointed that I haven't written more historical romances. <laughs> they, don't, they don't get upset that they, they signed in for a historical romance and their steampunk elements? Not at all. Not at all. In fact, they read it as being very fresh. They're like, oh, every other historical romance I read is either in Scotland or England or whatever. And now this one is like this fantasy elements, but it's it has enough of the same, you know, like fashion is very important for historical romances. Right. They're all about the way that people dressed and um, etiquette is very important in historical romance. It's also true in steampunk. So there's a lot of these real big, they're crossovers of the things that readers really care about. They really resonated with both the royal romance readers and the historical romance readers because it had those elements in the book. So it doesn't matter that I thought of it as steampunk. If you said this is steampunk to these guys, they would be like, what's steampunk? I don't understand what steampunk is. But they're reading a steampunk thing and they love it. So, so if somebody's watching and or listening to this and they're thinking I've got this series that I maybe need to to relaunch. Should they, if if it's got room for multiple things, should they simply make the decision based on which is the more uh, popular category with the larger audience or larger reader pool? What uh, what should, should yes. is is that the right way to go? Yes, but with the caveat that you can't just shove something in there if it doesn't fit, right? It has to have some essential pieces that fit. And that's where you have to actually understand your audience. Again, if you want to publish something, your your crossover science fiction fantasy novel, and you think that maybe fantasy is selling better right now, so you want to go publish it as a fantasy, but you make it with a science fiction-y cover, or you just don't understand that fantasy readers want, you know, to be transported and they don't want to be lectured about how your ray gun works, then, you know, you have to meet certain criteria and different genres are different that way. Okay. So like romance, boy, you can put all the technology stuff that you want in there. As long as you have the romance piece, they're going to be happy with you. They'll, they'll exist on a, a pretty bare minimum of romance because they'll fill in with all, all their own conjectures about stuff. Um, science fiction, on the other hand, is like they want the cool whiz-bang stuff. They got to have some cool whiz-bang stuff in there of some plot. So if you don't have enough of that, it might be too soft of a science fiction. But fortunately, science fiction is pretty broad. And science fiction readers are really forgiving on that side. Like they're like, I'm, I'll go with you on whatever this weird thing is that you're spinning out. If you tell me a good enough story, I, I'm good for that. You know, so I can write a future noir or I can write uh, young adult science fiction. And those are two very different things, but I'll get the same people to read those. 
because there's there's more flexibility of the mind. But like on the romance side, boy, they like their niche. They like, you know, you got to have wolf shifters who are part of a clan who, you know, like down the line, it's got to be very, very specific. And that's all they wanted to read. So if you intimated that it was that and it wasn't, then uh, there's going to be problems. <laughs> so you just you have to know your readers. And the way you know your readers is by reading and seeing what the feedback is to your books and just spending some time in the book world and understanding what people like and don't like. I am on a uh, never-ending crusade to convince authors who aren't reading to read. Uh, so how much uh, how much time do you spend reading on a weekly basis, monthly basis? Nowhere near enough. Like, I spent a lot of time reading um, in my youth. And I spent, and I got away from reading science fiction for a while because it pissed me off. <laughs> <laughs> It was not, it was being too technical and it had lost some of its um, humanity. And that was really irritating to me. So I stopped reading that for a while. And then I actually started reading romance around that same time. So because it has more humanity in it. So um, I would say I really don't read a lot of fiction and that's, it's not good. So I kind of like don't follow my own advice with that. I read a ton of nonfiction tons and tons of nonfiction. I'm reading all the time. And I get a lot of ideas for my fiction from my nonfiction. So, you know, there's crossover there. And I have a little bit of a trouble with fiction because I, I'm kind of an addict with it. So like, if I find a book that I really like, I mean, I just like, I'll stay up all night reading it. And like, I'll just I get that obsessive thing. So I have to be very careful not to do that while I'm trying to write, because <laughs> it interferes a little bit with my mojo. Um, so yes, you need to read. It's more like you need to be aware of what readers like and you don't have to, I mean, like how many novels can you read in a year? Even if you were super spending all your time doing it, the people that I, I honestly, the people that, that write a lot, they, they do read, but I would say that the mix is they're spending more time writing than reading. If you're spending more time reading than writing, Maybe that works for you, but the people that I see that are actually writing a lot, that's not the mix that they have. They have either equal or more slanted to hours at the keyboard producing their works. So something I've started doing just to, to help me out, because if I get to the end of a particularly long work day and I've been staring at words on a page all day, either writing them, revising them or some combination thereof, the last thing I want to do after all that is, OK, let's relax by staring at more words on a page. Uh, so one thing I'll do is I've, I've got a firm rule that first thing in the morning, that's reading time. Get me somebody else's book. Let me wake up, have my coffee and I'll read for an hour before I start my thing. Uh, and then at night it's audiobooks because then I can also you know do whatever I didn't do during the day uh, around the house or put on a video game and kind of veg out a little bit, but also get keep up with uh, with what's going on in genres and what's going on with my friends because I'm gonna see them at conferences and things. And and sooner or later they're gonna ask me, Shiley, did you read my book? And I don't want to lie and be like, yeah, I I loved it. <laughs> don't ask me any follow up questions. <laughs> yeah, whatever works for you. You know, I, people listen to audiobooks on the treadmill. There's all different ways to fit books in if you are, you know, keen to do it. There's ways to make it happen. I read with my kids. That's one of my go-to times is every night before bedtime. That's our wind down time. And my kids are like 15 and up, right? They're not little kids. Um, but we, 
we each get a couch and we each have our own book and it's just quiet time where we sit and do our readings. So, you know, whatever oh, that's works. Nice. Yeah, it is. It's it's kind of a fun bonding time too. So does double duty that way. Plus you get to do a little bit of research, right? If you ask them what they thought of the books, what they liked about them, what they didn't like, that sort of thing. Yeah. Or just to see what they're reading. You know, a lot of times they're like reading stuff for school or whatever, but you know, we can talk a little bit about it and it's a cool time. Susan, I could talk to you all day and I, and I would, um, <laughs> but I know we're coming up on our, our mutual deadline that we've got to go be responsible adults and, right. and take care of things. Um, I've got a, a cat I've got to go check on and a, <laughs> a little boy that's coming home. Okay. Uh, where uh, can esteemed audience find out more about you? Um, you can go to my website, have all my books on there, susankquinn.com. It's K-A-Y-E, uh, quinn.com. And, you know, I'm on all retailers. Got lots of free books out there. If you find something that looks to your liking, give it a try. And, yeah, you can sign up for my newsletter, find out what I'm working on latest. That's the way that I keep in touch with my readers the most. I'm on Facebook a lot, but I don't really talk about books. Sometimes I do. Mostly I, you know, talk about other stuff. So it's just for fun. It's not, I'm not a, I'm not one of those people that is like social media is how I sell books. It's like, no, <laughs> I sell books by selling books. And then I play on social media. So. Makes sense to me. And then people can download what copies of Open Minds. They can get Third Daughter. Third Daughter's the first one. Yes. Uh, and then uh, what other free books can they download immediately after, after finishing this? Oh, well, they got those two. Um, they got Zeph, which is, or um, what is the Locked, Locked Tight, which is Zeph's book, the other Mind Jack book that's free. Um, really, the first book in any of my series are free right now. So they've got like four or, four or five series under SKQ. And if you subscribe to my newsletter, you can get a collection of free short stories, like a box set. I like to write like background stories for my characters or standalone stories that are in the same world, but about a different character completely and just sort of illuminates a different side of the, the universe because I just have fun creating it. So you can get a collection of those when you subscribe to my newsletter. And of course you can get your copy of uh, Banneker Bones, wherever I put it, Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, which is free to download, as well as chapter one of the Book of David uh, by Robert Kent rather than Rob Kent. Uh, check all of this uh, out as well as uh, Susan K. Quinn's original seven question interview, interviews with hundreds of other authors and literary agents at middlegradeninja.com. Uh, Susan K. Quinn, thank you so very much uh, for being here. This has just been uh, wonderfully illuminating. I know this is an episode I personally am going to listen to multiple times to make sure I crack its fullness. Uh, and I'm working on a new uh, sign-off line because I've noticed that professional type podcast video things have sign-off lines. So I think we're going to say uh, hi-ya and what have you. So that way we can justify it's a little bit ninja-like. I, I haven't decided. What do you think? Should we say it forceful? Hi-ya and what have you, or just more casual? Hi-ya and what have you. Uh, Why don't you say it this time? <laughs> Me? Oh, okay. Hi-ya and what have you. I don't know. Perfect sign-off. We can't, we can't do it any better. Folks, okay. thanks so much for watching and listening. Have a wonderful time. And we'll see you next week uh, for Jacqueline West and then uh, Amy Tipton. We'll see you then.